0: prison, not a place many people plan on hanging around. So once they're there, it's only natural that they may attempt to get out. Pascal Paillet was a criminal living in France, and he was known for crimes involving robbery, murder, and even helicopters. Pascal had been in and out of prison for a few years, convicted for aggravated assault and conspiracy, so he knew quite well what happened behind bars. But on November 20th, 1997, Pascal was involved in an armored truck robbery where one of the truck's guards was shot and killed. He and Eric Alboreo, another of the armored truck thieves, were arrested a little over a year later, and Pascal was sentenced to 30 years in Lewin prison for murder. Thirty years was much too long for Pascal, however, and soon he began to hatch a plan. In 2001, Pascal exploited the one flaw in the prison security, the roof. After hijacking a helicopter, an associate of Pascal's, Frederick Puku, flew to the prison roof, where Pascal was able to climb in and escape. Six days later, Frederick was captured and taken in for questioning in Paris, while Pascal stayed hidden. And if it worked once, why not try it again? Pascal returned to Lewin Prison in 2003, the same prison he had escaped from two years earlier. This time, he was the rescuer, breaking out his criminal partner Eric and two other friends he had on the inside. Unfortunately for Pascal, he wasn't as well hidden as the time before. In a matter of three weeks, the four men were recaptured and taken back into custody. He was given an additional seven years on his sentence for helping three prisoners escape and six years for his own escape in 2001 pascal became one of the most closely watched prisoners in france he was never kept at the same prison for more than six months at a time and he was also kept in solitary confinement to hopefully keep his feet on the ground but nothing was enough It was 2007 when four masked men hijacked a helicopter from an airport in Ken and ordered the pilot to fly 20 minutes north to the prison where Pascal was being held. After landing on the roof at the start of the night shift, they infiltrated the prison with pistols and sawed off shotguns freed Pascal from his cell and took off. The entire prison break lasted less than five minutes. The helicopter landed near the Mediterranean coast and the five men fled the scene while the pilot was released unharmed. About two months later, he was finally found in Spain with his two accomplices. The frequent flyer was transferred into French custody where he was sent right back to prison. With a total of 63 years to serve, Pascal will probably spend the rest of his life behind bars. 31-year-old Jay Jr. Sigler was on his eighth year of a 20-year sentence when his friends and mother decided to come and pick him up. Sigler and his lifelong acquaintance Christopher Lee Mickelson had been arrested back in 1990 for the robbery of two tourists. Mickelson was only sentenced with eight years, but was not ready to leave his friend behind. The two quickly came up with a plan while in jail a few months before Mickelson was to be released on April 1st of 1998. After that, all he needed to do was to convince Sigler's mother and some friends to help. It was April 11th, only 10 days later, when he returned for his friend with backup. Using an 18-wheeler truck, Mickelson came to the rescue. With him was his sister Kelly Mitchell and her boyfriend John Beeston. They rammed through four prison fences to the Everglades Correctional Institution's courtyard where Sigler was waiting. Sandra Sigler, Jay's mother, followed close behind in her own car. The three in the truck armed, jumped out once they reached the courtyard where Beeston threw a shotgun to Jay. The men continued to fire at the corrections officers as everyone jumped into Mrs. Sigler's car, abandoning the truck. The five fled the scene, making a short stop at a nearby mall to swap vehicles. Jay and Mickelson took one car, while Mrs. Sigler, Beeston, and Mitchell piled into another. Unfortunately for them, the authorities quickly caught up with the three accomplices a little after the car switch when the trio stopped at a gas station, but Jay and Mickelson were long gone. The two had made it all the way to Popano Beach, Florida, about 40 miles away from the Everglades Correctional Institution, when they realized they were being followed. They sped away down an alley trying to lose their tail, but when they ran through a stop sign at 80 miles per hour, Sigler and Mickelson collided into an oncoming vehicle, instantly killing the 55-year-old driver, Dennis Palmer. Days from the accident, Sigler and Mickelson were both apprehended. Sandra Sigler, forced to testify against the son she tried to free, was able to be released after 13 months. Kelly Mitchell received the same sentencing, and John Beeston got 10 years in prison for his role. Both Jay Jr. Sigler and Christopher Lee Mickelson were sentenced to life in prison. Growing up in South Central Oklahoma, Richard Lee McNair was a man who people believed had a promising future. And being the son of a reserve police officer, most of those around him thought he'd excel in a career of authority. Instead, he became known for his escapes from authority. In November of 1987, 28-year-old Richard McNair was in the middle of robbing a grain elevator building when he came upon two men, Richard Kitsman and Jerome Thies. McNair shot Kitsman four times in his office and later killed Thies outside before fleeing. Police arrested him a few months later after they were able to match McNair's revolver to the weapon that was used at the scene, and he was sentenced to two life sentences in prison for murder, attempted murder, and burglary. It was at the police station when McNair made his first attempt to escape. Using a tube of lip balm as lubricant, McNair slipped out of his handcuffs and ran from the building. The chase ended with him jumping to a tree branch from a three flight stairway. When the branch broke, McNair landed painfully on his back and was easily apprehended. His second attempt happened in the North Dakota State Penitentiary. On October 9, 1992, he and two other prisoners escaped through a ventilation duct. McNair was a fugitive until the following July when he was captured in Grand Island, Nebraska. Eventually, McNair was transferred to a maximum security federal prison in Louisiana. It was there where his most creative escape took place. He mailed himself out. For months, Richard was set to work in a manufacturing area where he would repair old, torn mailbags. He soon came up with the idea of smuggling himself out with them, and in 2006, over ten years since his last escape attempt, Richard placed himself under layers of repaired bags and constructed himself a breathing tube for his trip. The shipment was shrink-wrapped and transported outside of the prison to a nearby warehouse where McNair cut himself free and fled to the nearest town. To further humiliate authorities, McNair was spotted running a few hours later by a police officer. The escapee was, by that time, clothed in a tank top and shorts. He tried to convince the officer that he was in town on a roofing project and simply out for a jog. Despite McNair accidentally giving two different names during the questioning and not having identification, the officer allowed McNair to return to his jog. The entire incident was even captured via dashboard camera on the officer's patrol car. Throughout his time as a fugitive, McNair stole vehicles and cash from car dealerships knowing how to avoid their security from previous experience as a car salesman. He successfully stayed off the grid for about a year and would taunt his old prison officials. He even sent his old warden a Christmas card. It was October of 2007 when McNair was finally caught in a stolen van in New Brunswick, about 100 miles north of the U.S.-Canadian border. Richard Lee McNair is now currently incarcerated at ADX Florence, a supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. In any criminal justice system, no matter how carefully constructed, there are bound to be flaws... Men and women are wrongfully convicted or sent to prison for long periods of time for non-violent minor crimes. But perhaps worst of all is what happens when killers are set free only to kill again. It's a flaw that proves some people should remain locked away for good. As an adult, Kenneth McDuff was known as the Broomstick Killer, but in his youth, he was a bully without the brains or brawn to get him far. After losing a fight to another student, Kenneth dropped out of school and began doing manual labor for his father's concrete business. But performing the mundane day in and day out seemed to feed his desire for a little excitement, the illegal and violent kind. Kenneth committed a string of burglaries that landed him in jail in 1964, but by the next year, he was walking the streets again. And on the night of August 6, 1966, Kenneth and his friend Roy Green went for a drive to look for a girl and to look for trouble. Around 10 p.m., they spotted 16-year-old Edna Louise Sullivan standing next to a car accompanied by her boyfriend, 17-year-old Robert Brand and 15-year-old Mark Dunman. Kenneth pulled out a revolver and approached the car, ordering the frightened teenagers into the trunk. He then drove the car to an open field where he shot Robert and Mark dead. Roy and Kenneth then took turns raping Edna before Kenneth choked her with a broomstick pressing so hard he broke her neck. Roy served 11 years for the crime, while Kenneth was handed a death sentence for each victim, which was later commuted to life in prison. However, Kenneth and his lawyer convinced the parole board that Roy had been the main instigator in the murders and that Kenneth was ready to contribute to society as a free man. He was released in October of 1989 and immediately acquired a job at a gas station and began classes at a Texas technical college. He was briefly detained for a parole violation, but was again a free man by 1991. Not long after his release, two women were found murdered within the central Texas area. 28-year-old Colleen Reed, an accountant out of Dallas, and 22-year-old Melissa Northrup, who was pregnant with her third child when she was murdered. Authorities connected Kenneth to the crimes, and he was apprehended while on the run in Kansas City in May of 1992. Kenneth is widely thought to be responsible for a dozen other murders in Texas, but it only took one conviction to ensure that he would never leave prison again. He was given the death sentence, and he died by lethal injection on November 17, 1998. He is the first man who escaped death row once, only to return for a separate murder charge. When you're capable of killing the people you claim to love, it seems like it would be obvious you're willing to do the same to just about anyone. However, in the case of Jimmy Lee Gray, authorities didn't recognize just how dangerous he was until it was far too late. In 1968, while he was a senior in high school, Jimmy met 16-year-old Elda Prince, and the two were instantly taken with one another. And as time went on, they made plans to marry after Jimmy's graduation. But that all changed one afternoon in 1968 when police found Elda's body discarded in a drainage ditch. Her throat slashed. Jimmy confessed to the crime and was to serve 20 years in an Arizona prison, but was released on parole after only serving six. Two years later, in 1976, Jimmy found himself living in an apartment complex in Mississippi where he committed his most atrocious murder. After abducting three-year-old Duressa Jean Scales from her apartment, he drove her to a wooded area where he raped and suffocated her by forcing her face into the mud before breaking her neck. Jimmy was found guilty and sentenced to die by gas chamber, but his execution didn't go exactly as planned. Once inside the chamber, Jimmy began thrashing around, bashing his head against an unpadded iron bar behind his chair, causing so much gore the observation room had to be cleared out. Many reporters said it took Jimmy as long as eight minutes to finally succumb to the toxic fumes. And while it is considered one of the most botched executions to date, the families of his victims and even his own mother said his execution day had been a long time coming and felt his end was justified for the crimes he'd committed. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories From the moment he was born, Jack Unterweger had all the odds stacked against him. He was the product of a prostitute and an American soldier and was abandoned to live with his alcoholic grandfather in Austria where Jack himself began drinking at the age of five. Crime, it seems, was the only life Jack knew and his first arrest came at the age of just 16 years old for assaulting a prostitute. But Jack's hatred for sex workers only escalated as the years went on. In 1976, Jack strangled an 18-year-old prostitute named Margaret Schaefer with her own bra. He was sentenced to life in prison, but while locked away, he used his time wisely. He went from illiterate to writing poetry, children's books, and a best-selling autobiography that earned him acclaim from the literary community outside the prison walls. Intellectuals saw him as a shining example of reform in the prison system, and the parole board agreed. Jack was released in 1990 after serving just 15 years and instantly he was thrust into the limelight. His autobiography was made into a feature film and Jack was constantly appearing on television and radio talk shows. During his rise to stardom, however, prostitutes began turning up dead in the forests surrounding Vienna. Most of the women had been strangled with their own stockings and despite police's best efforts, they were unable to narrow down a suspect. But even with all the media attention, no one suspected Jack was already killing again or that he was far from reformed. Wherever Jack went, sex workers turned up dead. In 1991, while on a writing assignment in L.A., three prostitutes were found murdered near where he was staying. All of them had been badly beaten, strangled with their own bras, and sexually assaulted with tree branches. It was at this point Austrian authorities made the connection to Jack. After evading the authorities for nearly a year, he was captured by the FBI in 1992 and sent back to Austria to face prosecution for his crimes. Despite his attempts to convince the Austrian media and his fellow intellectuals that he was completely innocent, the evidence was stacked against him. He was found guilty of nine counts of murder and sentenced in June 1994 to life in prison without parole. However, he wouldn't live to see even a day of his sentence as he committed suicide by hanging himself just hours later. Young Arthur Shawcross wasn't particularly smart and resorted to bullying and violence for attention. He was also allegedly molested by his aunt at age nine, which he says sparked his lifelong obsession with sex. And after failing the ninth grade and dropping out of school to join the military, it seems his fascination with violence only grew. By 1971, Arthur had married and divorced twice, fathered one child, served a tour of duty in the Vietnam War, and spent time behind bars for arson. But it was in his town of Watertown, New York, in 1972 when the real crimes began. Ten-year-old Jack Blake and eight-year-old Karen Ann Hill were both found raped and murdered, and both victims were seen with Arthur shortly before their deaths. He received a sentence of 25 years for the killings, but only served 15 before he was released on parole in 1987, despite pleas from psychiatrists to keep him incarcerated. He moved to Rochester, New York, where he met and married his fourth wife. But as the years passed, everything from his mundane job to his marriage and sex life bored him, which is when he began meeting with prostitutes under the name Mitch. From 1988 to the end of 1989, Mitch would be seen with a prostitute, who would later turn up dead under horrific conditions. Many of the victims had been asphyxiated, sexually mutilated, and strangled before being dumped in or near the Genesee River. The FBI teamed up with local authorities in an attempt to gain any more information that might lead to the capture of the elusive Mitch. It wasn't until the body of a prostitute named June Cicero was found that investigators caught their lucky break. Arthur was apprehended by police while masturbating near the crime scene, and when local prostitutes confirmed Arthur Shawcross as the man they all knew as Mitch, investigators finally had their Genesee River killer. Arthur was convicted of 10 out of his 11 recent murders and sentenced to 25 years on each count, a total of 250 years behind bars. He married again while serving his sentence, but died shortly after in 2008 from cardiac arrest. It is believed if not for his ill-advised release in 1987, his killing spree wouldn't have escalated and the lives of 11 women would have been spared. Serial killer David Edward Moss said his disturbed childhood was the driving force behind his need for bloodshed. But what made him unique was that he agreed he should be kept behind bars. However, after prison authorities ignored his pleas to remain incarcerated multiple times, David's body count began to grow. According to his mother, David was incredibly violent towards his siblings to the point that he even tried to drown his own brother, and by the time he was nine years old, he was institutionalized. From there, David hopped between different children's homes where he claims he was sexually molested and where he developed a habit of choking his fellow residents. In 1971, David returned to Chicago where his mother forced him to enlist in the army. While stationed in Germany in 1972, David tied 13-year-old Jimmy McClister to a tree and beat him to death. David served four years for the crime and requested to remain in prison when he was eligible for parole in 1977, but he was ignored and released anyway. The crime only continued from there, with attempted murders in 1979 and 1981, and the successful murder of a 15-year-old boy named Donald Jones in 1981. David was sentenced to 35 years for his crimes in 1994, but again was eligible for parole in 1999. He implored prison officials to keep him behind bars, saying he didn't believe he deserved to be a free man for the crimes he'd committed. Again, he was ignored and released in June of 1999. He remained homeless until he landed a job at a trophy store in Hammond, Indiana in 2003, where he met 19-year-old Nick James, who later disappeared. It was only in December of 2003 when authorities were searching David's rental home did they discover Nick's body in the basement buried in cement. After more digging, police also uncovered the bodies of 13-year-old Michael Dennis and 16-year-old James Regani, who had both been missing since September. David pled guilty to all three murders, and he was sentenced to life in prison, only this time without the chance of parole. However, in 2006, just a year after his sentencing, David was found hanging from the bedsheets in his cell next to a note that said he hoped his death would help the families of his victims heal and move forward. Life is full of chance. Even life itself is a chance. And there are numerous possibilities for great things to happen. But that also applies for potentially bad things. We're one of billions of people put on this planet, each with their own individual set of chances. By chance, we come into contact with a few of these different people in our lives. Some become friends, acquaintances, family, lovers, or it could be people we share limited interaction with, such as a cashier. Or perhaps it's just people we're walking by on the street. So it's pretty great to know that your path could intersect with the paths of numerous good-hearted people in the world. However, what are the chances that one of those paths might be that of a serial killer? When it comes to the probability of encountering a serial killer, there are numerous factors to take into consideration. From where you live, and how many people you interact with daily, to how long you live, a lot goes into determining your chances of meeting these sorts of human beings, whether casually or more intimately. For starters, if you live in the United States, your chances of meeting a serial killer are higher than many other developing countries, with America being home to almost 67% of known serial killers in the world. And that's just the ones that we know exist, meaning those we have identified are behind bars, or are deceased. As for those we don't know, it's hard to say how many are walking the streets unidentified. For this video, we will calculate the probability for those living in the United States in order to be as accurate as possible. Serial murders account for around 1% of all murders in the U.S., with the FBI estimating that there are between 25 to 50 active serial killers at a time during a given year. However, many speculate that this is a low average. According to data gathered by Dr. Mike Abbott at Radford University, a high number of previous years have had as many as 170 active serial killers at one time. Again, these are just the ones we most likely know about and not those who have yet to be discovered or have been going unnoticed for their crimes for years. Unlike other types of criminals, serial killers rarely stand out in a crowd in a way that would arouse suspicion. Despite our inclination to see the typical serial killer as a misfit who lives alone with strange mannerisms that would make them easy to spot, many fit well into regular society, often having a family and gainful employment. Dennis Rader, better known as the BTK killer, who killed ten victims around the Wichita area, was described as being an average family man and father of two, on top of this, he was a Boy Scout leader, served honorably in the U.S. Air Force, and was employed as a local government official, and he was even president at his church. Years after the murders, Raider's daughter Carrie described the man that she knew as her father to be attentive, often taking her fishing, hiking, and camping, all the while never knowing the life her father led outside of the home. Apart from leading seemingly average lives, many of them can also be incredibly intelligent. Instead of appearing weird and off-putting, many come across as charming, causing their victims to place more trust in them. Probably the most famous example would be Ted Bundy, whose intelligence and articulate nature allowed him to get close to his victims. And while most of the world's serial killers operate in the United States, not all states pose the same opportunity. While large states like California and Texas boast high numbers of serial murders, it is some of the smaller, more rural states that have the most serial killers when adjusted for population differences. In fact, Alaska has the most serial murders per million people, despite that we have less data in a shorter amount of time. Making up many of those murders was Robert Hansen, who raped, tortured, and murdered young women for most of the 1970s. Much like other serial killers, Hansen led a normal life of respectability with his wife and kids, working as a baker and interacting with the public regularly. And, with the remote nature of the Alaskan frontier at his side, he was able to conceal many of the bodies in remote grave sites, taking them deep into the wilderness in his small airplane. So you understand a serial killer could blend into the public and be anywhere, pretty much at any time. So, what do the numbers say? What are your chances of encountering one? Well, we have to determine first a few factors. For this, we will be looking at the probability of meeting a serial killer in the US in your lifetime alone. Our country's current population is roughly 320 million people. On average, there are 4.5 murders for every 100,000 people per year with only 1% being serial murder. Although there are many differing definitions on what makes a serial murderer, we will be using the definition of a person who kills 3 or more people with cooling down periods in between. With this, we find that there are around 57 serial killers in any given year, taking into account both low and high years in the past. So 57 is the magic number that we will use. Out of the 1% of serial murders that happen every year, assuming that each serial killer only kills their three respective people in those statistics, serial killers make up around 0.000018% of the U.S. population. On the surface, this seems very small, right? Well, let's look at that number over the course of your life. Whenever you are out and about on your daily routine, let's say you're encountering three new people per day. This could be walking down the street, going shopping, or even maybe chatting online. To loosely define our terms, let's say an encounter is either being in close proximity to a person or speaking with them, even if only briefly. The number three also takes into consideration the fact that some days you may encounter no one new, and some days you may encounter more than three people. That being said, let's talk lifespan. In the In the US, the average life expectancy is around 78 years, so for every day for 78 years, you continue that trend of encountering three new people per day. In one day, you would have a 0.2% chance of meeting a serial killer in your daily life. But in your lifetime, you have a 0.78% chance. So in your whole life, you don't even have a full 1% chance of meeting a serial killer. So you may be thinking to yourself at this point, I'm probably never going to meet a serial killer. Whether you're happy or sad about that fact, I'm not sure. But let's break it down a different way. When I say 0.78%, you may feel that barely anyone encounters a serial killer, but let's say it another way. While the probability of meeting a serial killer is a much lower one than, say, dying of heart disease or cancer, your chances of meeting a serial killer are more likely than some other terrifying life experiences, such as being struck by lightning or being attacked by a shark. And while these can understandably be more easily avoided by not swimming in the ocean or going out during a thunderstorm, this chance meeting is more bound to happen than other more sudden events, including dying in a terrorist-related attack. Unless you're traveling to more hostile areas of the world, your chances of dying in a terrorist attack are 1 in 9.3 million. How many people either already have or very likely will encounter a serial killer? 1 in 128. Makes you put that low percentage into perspective, doesn't it? And of course, this is a probability of you just having a chance encounter with a serial killer, not being their next victim. However, when it comes to when a serial killer wants to kill you, really, we're all pretty much at risk. Like our assumptions that all serial killers fit the profile of being young white men, many often assume that a serial killer's targets are women, often involving sexual crimes as well as murder. However, studies have shown that both men and women are just as likely to be murdered by a serial killer with neither gender holding a larger advantage or rather disadvantage over the other. Many of them also fall around the same age group so young women are no more likely to be murdered by a serial killer than a young man would be. Perhaps this is because as the data shows, serial killers are less likely to kill out of purely sexual or material purposes, but rather for power or satisfaction of a kill. So it seems we all have just as much of a chance for fitting the ideal profile of a killer's next victim. And with the world more connected than ever with the internet and social media, our chances of encountering a serial killer are just that much higher. There might even be one watching right this second. Speaking of watching my video, let's say this episode reaches 250,000 views, which it will. Taking the probability we've calculated into account, around 2,000 of you out of that 250,000 will very likely encounter at least one serial killer in your lifetime if you haven't already. Nearly two. 1,000 of you. Perhaps you may even meet the one that is potentially watching with you right now. Although I would never assume that the people who watch my videos on a regular basis are potential serial murderers, you never know who's watching you online or who you might meet in your lifetime. In the end, it all comes down to chance. And now is the time where I questioned you. I asked on my Twitter, would you ever want to meet a serial killer who hasn't been captured? 44% of you said absolutely, but only if your safety was guaranteed. 28% of you said never, not a chance. 17% of you said possibly. And 11% of you said yes, anytime, anyplace, regardless of your own personal safety. And if you'd like to learn more about serial killers, check out my show, Serial Killer Files. That is linked in the description. Stay safe.
1: Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way, because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care, and enjoy your next episode.